All right, so let's jump into Romans. And we're going to be in chapter 11, and we're going to be in verses 7 through 12. Romans 11, 7 through 12. This is a bit of a hard text, uh, especially for Mother's Day. Uh, what we have committed to at Eternal City Church is going through books of the Bible, verse by verse by verse, without skipping any verses, without neglecting any verses, and we've chosen to do that consecutively. So it's kind of like wherever the verses fall, that's where they fall, and this one happened to fall on Mother's Day. So it is kind of a judgment text, uh, but mom, I love you. I really do. Uh, this will be beneficial for you. Here's why. Because all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, beneficial for training, for upbuilding, for rebuking, uh, and for, for teaching in righteousness. And so this is a beneficial text. However, uh, my, my aim is going to be to make as much practical application as much as unearthing it and illuminating it. Okay? We cool? All right, let's pray and let's jump into Romans chapter 11. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, you have chosen to reveal yourself and your will to us through 66 books. Father, you have chosen to reveal to us who are post-cross, post-resurrection, post-Pentecost, post-first century. You've given us a book that reveals to us what you've done in history that we might be saved. Father, we thank you that your word does not change that it is solid, that it doesn't shift as culture shifts. It doesn't shift as popular opinion rises and falls. Father, your word stands like a mountain, unmovable, unshakable, withstanding any season. And Father, we know you through your word. And so we pray that that would happen tonight, that you would reveal yourself to us. May we come to know you in a deeper and fuller way. May we come to love you in a deeper and fuller way. May your word be a means of relational intimacy and growth. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. All right, let's do it. Paul is continuing this theme of what do we do with unbelieving Jewish people? Now, Paul does not have it out for Jewish people in a negative way. He himself is Jewish. The 12 apostles or disciples were Jewish. Jesus himself was Jewish. The problem that Paul is wrestling with is if Jesus was promised in the 39 books of the Old Testament, if he was prophesied in Isaiah 53 to be the suffering servant who would be a substitute for all those who would trust in him, especially the Jewish people, if he was, as Revelation says he is, the lion of the tribe of Judah, then why are so many ethnic Jewish people rejecting Jesus as the Messiah? What do we do with that? That's Romans 9, 10, and 11. And in Romans 11, the, the perspective is from God's view. Has God rejected his people? That's the question. And so we jump into verse 7, and we're going to go through verse 12. There's enough in here to pack an hour, but I don't want to do that. So if my clock person could start me, uh, we'll, we'll be safe in bounds, and you could still get to Mother's Day dinner maybe uh, within about an hour, okay? Is that fair? I'm not going to preach for an hour, I hope, if you pray for me, but you can get to dinner in about an hour. Wouldn't that be great? All right, what then, Paul says, 
Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? The Greek there is their fullness mean. Now, in order to understand what is going on in these verses specifically, we're going to have to dip back into the Old Testament and we're going to have to dip back into Romans 9 where this discussion began about what do we do with unbelieving Israel? What do we do with the unbelieving Jewish people who were supposed to be the recipients of the Jewish Messiah, namely Jesus of Nazareth? And so the first question in verse 7 is this. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? Did Israel fail to obtain what it was seeking? Well, I think we need to ask the question, what was it seeking? If they failed to attain it, what was it in the first place? And if we just jump back a few chapters to chapter 9, we can see exactly what they were seeking. What shall we say then? That Gentiles... And by the way, Gentiles are everyone who's not Jewish. So whatever your ethnicity is, maybe you're Irish, maybe you're Ethiopian, maybe you're Alaskan, uh, you're Gentile if you're not Jewish. Okay? So us, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith but that Israel who, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were based on work. So here's what's going on here. What are they pursuing? Righteousness. Righteousness is, I want to be right before God. I want God to see me as right before him. That's the righteousness. And you can see here, the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness, they got it. But Israel, who pursued it by law, hoping that obeying law would lead to righteousness, they did not succeed in reaching it. And here's the deal, friends. No one, no one, the best person you know, cannot attain righteousness by doing good or keeping the moral law of God. No one. For as Romans 3 clearly says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who seeks after God. No one, not one. And so we all as humanity, whether Jews or Gentiles, are not righteous before God. We have one hope, friends. Our one hope is a Jewish Messiah who was righteous 
and who offers that righteousness as a gift. He says, my life for your life. My righteousness in exchange for your unrighteousness. I will pay the price of your sin on the cross. I will bear the burden of eternal hell for you on the cross. I'll pay the price. I'll absorb the debt so you don't have to. And then in exchange, we get the perfect life of Jesus. And so Gentiles, by finding Jesus, get the righteousness. The Jewish people seeking to obey the law of God in the Old Testament cannot attain righteousness because no one can attain righteousness by law. Now, we could throw out the law of God and we could just ask you to think about your own standards. We did this in Romans too, but it's a helpful one-minute exercise. Okay, How often do you get offended at other people? They're so rude. I can't believe they said this on Facebook. Look at what this person did, and now they're in prison. And, and so we point the finger, and we're like, I can't believe it. But yet, those same things that we can point out in others, we often do. I can't believe they lied to me, but yet you lie to other people. I can't believe they were so rude to me, yet you're rude to other people. I can't believe they got mad and yelled at me, yet you get mad and yell at other people. And so when we are able to point out wrong in other people, that means you have a moral standard, and then you violate it every time you do the same thing that you point at others. Again, you don't need the law of God. Just use your own standard and see how you're doing. Anytime you get offended at anyone else and then you do that same thing that you get offended by, you prove you know it's wrong by pointing it out in others and then you practice the very same thing you know to be wrong. You've condemned yourself. And that's what judgment day is going to look like for a lot of people. God doesn't need to run down the list to condemn you. He could just use your list and you'll condemn yourself. So law in order to be right with God in any fashion, whether it's God's moral law or our own law, we're in trouble, aren't we? And this is the good news that Jesus did live according to not just his standard, but God's standard, perfectly fulfilling the moral law. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself completely and totally. So Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What? Righteousness before God by moral law keeping. But look, the elect obtained it. Now, Paul's really clear here. A lot of people get squirmish when it's that clear and that blunt and that in your face. What elect means is to choose. When it's in reference to people, it means that God has chosen some people to obtain righteousness. That's what this verse means. What else could it mean? Okay, the Jewish people failed as a whole, again, as a whole, remember what we've been talking about over the last month here, the Jewish people as a whole have failed to obtain righteousness because they did not go by way of the Messiah. Yet the elect did believe in Jesus and thereby obtained the righteousness that is through faith in Christ. Now, we went through Romans 8, uh, 29 through 30. 
We went through Romans 9. Uh, if you're not familiar with election and how that all works, I encourage you to go back and listen to those verses. They're on uh, eternalcity.org. We spent a lot of time on them, and I don't have a ton of time to go through it again. But the basics are God decides whom he will choose before the foundation of the world. It's very clear in Ephesians 1. And those people in time, God draws to himself powerfully and effectively, and they are made alive by God's Spirit, and from that new life within them, from that new heart, they believe. Their belief then gets justification, and justification is based on Jesus' perfect life given to them as a gift. And so it's just as if I'd never sinned, and just as if I'd always obeyed. That's justification. The elect get justified. But the rest were hardened. We don't like that. Paul, why are you being so blunt? <laughs> God has the right to harden people. And, and, and it doesn't matter if we like it or not. In one sense, God is concerned with our feelings. Yet, countless billions of people have been offended at God through the ages, and He is not touched. He is God. He rules and reigns on high in a whole other dimension than we can imagine. Glory and splendor beyond our wildest imagination. Does that mean he does not draw near to those who are hurting and suffering and lowly? It does not mean that. In fact, the text says he does that specifically. He draws near to the brokenhearted. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out and a a broken reed he will not snap and break. No, God is, yes, gentle and lowly. In fact, Jesus said that, come to me, I am gentle and lowly in heart. But yet, if you're offended at him, he doesn't have a problem with that. And even the most offensive uh, are often the ones who end up bowing the knee, like Paul. He's very offended at Jesus. In fact, so offended he would make it his life's aim to destroy the church of Jesus. And yet he becomes one who builds up and expands the church of Jesus. Shows his power and his might. Now, let's talk about hardening because now Paul is going to quote in verses 8 and 9 and 10 what he means by hardening. Okay, so he's going to quote some Old Testament texts here, and specifically, he's going to quote Deuteronomy 24.4 and Isaiah 29.10 in verse 8. So let's read it first. As it is written, okay, when you see as it is written, pointing back to the Old Testament, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Now, what Paul likes to do is he knows his Old Testament, probably has it memorized. He likes to take a portion of a verse here and a portion of a verse here, and he squashes them together, and he is quoting Scripture. Because all he says is, as it is written. He doesn't say in Deuteronomy and in Isaiah and the Psalms. He just, this is what the Old Testament says. And so we can find this reference here in Deuteronomy 24 and then in Isaiah 29. 
So let's read it. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, so here's the context. In Deuteronomy 24, they have been through the wilderness for 40 years. And you remember, a lot of judgment occurred in that 40 years. In fact, an entire generation had to die off before they would be allowed to enter into the promised land. And so many terrible things had happened in that 40 years, much rebellion against God, much stiff-neckedness, if you will. And so Moses summons all Israel and says to them, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and his land, speaking of the Exodus and the 10 plagues. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. Now look at verse 4. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Now, this is how the Bible teaches. We are so broken in our sin. It's called total depravity. We are so depraved in our sin that we refuse to listen to God and we often refuse to see what's plainly in front of us until God makes us see and he makes us hear. Because we will not see and we will not hear. That's the problem. What God tells us plainly, the sin within us rebels against and we don't want to see what's right in front of our face. How many of you have been in a, a fight with your spouse and your spouse is hammering you with the truth and you know it's true, yet everything in you is like, but you, <laughs> and what about, and you got this list to counteract the truth that your spouse is plainly laying out. But then you know what happens, right? You, you get some distance from that stress and that tension and that adrenaline. And then when you calm down, you begin to say to yourself, they were right. Am I right or am I wrong? Is it just me I'm telling myself here? <laughs> I just had to do this the other day. I had to come to my wife. You know, we had a disagreement. She had some very kind, gentle, loving, soft words for me. And, and I had to say afterward, you know, you were right. I thought about what you said. You're absolutely right. Yet in the moment, she was not right. She was wrong. And so th this is the point. We often will not hear and we will not see even if we're given a billboard size mirror. And it takes God to open our eyes and to open our ears. And friends, do you know what that's called? It's called having a soft heart. Do you know what it's called when you resist God and you stiff arm him and you say, I will have it my way and not your way? That's called having a hard heart. And you know what God doesn't have to do? God doesn't have to put fresh evil in anyone's heart to resist him. Because we are, by our own free will and by our own nature as sinners, resistant. Resistant. And so here's how Romans 1 actually says God hardens. It says, he gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them over to their own desires, their own will, their own wants, their own pleasures. God says, okay, have it your way. And your heart just gets harder 
and harder and harder and you become more resistant and more calcified and your hate grows for God and your love decreases until there's none left. And if God does not pull you out of that place, you will middle finger him forever. You will. That's called hell. He is hostile to you forever and you are hostile to him forever. That's hell, friends. And so how does God harden? He gives you over to your own desires and sinful wants. Friends, that's a dangerous place to be. Where you want to be, friends, is soft and pliable and humble and receptive, saying, God, your will. And may I remind you, in the most famous prayer in the Bible... Your kingdom come, say it, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And yet, friends, I'm telling you, your flesh, if you're a Christian, you still have sin living in you. It's, it's in your flesh. Your flesh does not want to say, God, your will be done. Your flesh wants your personal will to be done, not God's. Because often there's this struggle, this striving against what is right and what God wants. And friends, if God gives you over to your flesh, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, you will condemn yourself. You will run over the cliff. Okay. Now, again, I know it's Mother's Day. I love you mothers. Uh, I told you this was going to be a hard text. The, the, we're going through Romans, verse by verse by verse. We're not skipping any, not even for Mother's Day, okay? And, and if you came in late, ladies, you, you do get a book, so we do love you. Uh, it's not all dark and gloom, so make sure you get one of these books before you leave. Uh, and, and don't leave before the sermon's over because it will brighten up towards the end, okay? <laughs> I love you. All right. So, but to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And then he, he mashes in Isaiah 29 as well. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. It's as if you're sleeping to God. Now, we use language on, like this, right? Man, don't sleep on that movie. Don't sleep on that restaurant. Wait, why are you sleeping on that song? Meaning, you're, you're just blind to it. You're not into it. You don't go after it. You don't pursue it. And so, the Lord has poured out upon these Jewish people A thick dose of melatonin. <laughs> They're sleeping on God. And has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. The prophets and seers uh, spoke for God. And so, he, before we do Matthew 10, let's read it one more time. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Now, what this is called is judicial hardening. Okay, It's a judgment. And God is free to judge people if they're wrong and they deserve judgment, right? Wouldn't you agree that the judge of all the earth is free to judge those who are deserving judgment? Is that logical? Does that make sense? Okay. Now here's the problem. We're all deserving judgment. It's like, dang. 
Okay, but in this text here in Matthew 10, I want you to see this. This is it played out in parabolic form with actual telling of parables. Okay, so let's look at it. This is Jesus in his ministry. He has just told the parable of the sowers. Do you remember that parable? A farmer went out to sow seeds. Some fell on rocky ground. Some fell on uh, the path. Some fell on a uh, plant area where, where weeds grew up and choked it out. And then some fell on uh, good ground and produced fruit, uh, 30, 60, 100 fold. And then he tells the story to the crowds, and then he leaves the crowds, and it's just him and the disciples. Like he tells this great, compelling story, and he walks away. And so the disciples are like, wait a minute. Then the disciples came to him. Why do you speak to them in parables? Why do you tell these really compelling stories? And he answered them, to you, disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, the crowds, it has not been given. Now, may I remind you, who was, who was the makeup of the crowds? Where was Jesus primarily ministering when he was alive? With Jewish people in Judea and surrounding areas and northern Israel. Okay, So Jewish people primarily. But to them... It has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. All right, pause. Judgment. Okay, so they see something, but they don't see the meaning of it. They hear it, but they don't hear the deeper revelation. But to you, disciples, it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's my warning, friends. If you are apathetic, meaning I could just care less, about God, about his kingdom, about his will, about his word, about following after him, friends, listen to this. For to the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is the warning, friends. Have you ever noticed that people who seem to be really hungry for God just continue to get more hungry? And it's like, wait, how many books have you read? And how many people have you talked to about Jesus? And and yet the people who are apathetic seem to get more sleepy, more bored. I could care less. Another group, eh, my Netflix show. This is the principle. Friends, it's judgment. If you could care less, guess what? You will begin to care less and less and less. But if you care a lot, you will begin to care even more and even more and even more. This is real. And so this is my encouragement. If you find yourself today and your care level is very low, you should up it a little bit. And you know what will happen? You'll be given a little more. And then you know what? You need to up it a little more and you'll be given more. But friends, if you continue to go down, do you know what will happen? 
you will continue to spiral down. Please don't do that. Don't play with God. It's grace that you're here tonight to hear this. Okay. So for the crowds, they are the ones who see but don't see, they hear but don't hear, and they don't get to go deeper. But see, the disciples have, and they get more and more and more. Verse 14, indeed, in their case, the crowds, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. Now he's speaking of Isaiah chapter 6. And you remember Isaiah 6. It's one of the most famous places in the Old Testament. Isaiah, in the year King Uzziah died, he was in the temple and he sees the Lord. A vision of Jesus. And his, the, the train of his robe filled the entire temple. And there's angels to his right and left with six wings. And with two wings, they're flying. Two, they're covering their feet. Two, they're covering their face. And they keep crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Just like we just sang. And then Isaiah says, woe is me. And as a prophet, he pronounces a curse on himself. He says, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. And then God commands one of the angels to take a coal, a burning coal from the altar and touch it to Isaiah's lips. And he is cleansed. And then God says, who will go for us? Who shall we send? And Isaiah says, I'll go. Here I am. Send me. Familiar? Very familiar, right? And then God says, I'm going to send you, but here's what's going to happen. You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. And we'll visit that again in a little bit. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears, with their ears, they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Now notice here Jesus puts the emphasis on the people. Look, this people's heart has grown dull. It's on them now. With their ears they can barely hear. With their eyes they have closed. They have closed their eyes. Lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and turn. Turn means repent. Turn to God. Turn from sin. Otherwise they would turn, and what would happen if we repent? I will heal them. Friends, repentance is always a beautiful thing. And if we would repent from sin and turn to God, He will heal. He will help. He will forgive. He will draw near. And then verse 16, but blessed are your eyes, disciples, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And so here, this is the, these verses playing out in Jesus' ministry. Let their uh, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. So even the parables were a judgment on the crowd who had closed their ears, closed their eyes, and so God further closed their ears and closed their eyes. Okay? And so then he quotes uh, Psalm, I believe it's 69, yes it is, Psalm 69, 22 to 23. Here it is. 
Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they're at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. So this is verse 9 and 10. David wrote uh, Psalm 69, and here's what he says. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now, interestingly, if you were to read Psalm 69, and I would challenge you to do it. We don't have time to do it right now, but it is a messianic psalm, meaning there are certain psalms that point very clearly and very specifically to Jesus. Hey, the New Testament writers point to Jesus in this psalm multiple times, not just once, over and over and over again, especially on the cross. Uh, you know, they gave him strong drink on the cross, uh, wine mixed with myrrh or, or gall. And so that, that's where this comes from. It's Psalm 69. And so the idea here is probably, in Paul's mind, he's connecting Psalm 69 as a messianic psalm, and he's connecting the Jewish rejection of Jesus. And so as a judgment, what will happen? Their eyes will be darkened so that they cannot see. Bend their backs forever. Now, David was not thinking about the rejection of his people of the Messiah, but God writing through David was. David did not know. Most prophets did not know. In fact, that's what... Uh, Jesus just said, many prophets long to see what you see. Many seers did not see what they were writing about specifically. They, didn't, they weren't consciously aware that they were writing of the Messiah or writing, uh, but they wrote, and then they longed to look into these things. And so the idea here is uh, God is judging the Jewish people. It's judicial hardening. Okay? That's what's happening. We don't like it but it's rejection of Jesus, and he's further hardening their hearts. Now, let's go to verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? I love it. By no means. All right. So remember, before the question was, were the Jewish people rejected as a whole? And the answer was no, because I am Jewish. I am an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. And then he quotes, the, there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Remember that in Elijah's day? Pointing to there are Jewish people who believe. So as a whole, they are not uh, rejected. So now, did they all stumble to fall? No. No, they did not. Okay? They stumbled over the stumbling stone who is Jesus, yes. But did they fall? No. Rather, through their trespass, trespass meaning the rejection of Jesus, salvation has come to the Gentiles. All right, now this is deep, but this is what Paul sees here. And this is what Paul experienced over and over and over. Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. Yet, when the Jewish people rejected Jesus, do you know who got in the covenant? Me. And you, if you're believing. Jewish rejection meant Gentile acceptance of the Messiah. Now, I want to show you this in just a few places. Here's it in Acts 13. This is uh, Paul and Barnabas at Antioch in Pisidia. They had preached the gospel to the Jewish people in the synagogue, and watch what happens. As they went out, out of the synagogue, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. 
right? Because they gathered on the Sabbath for synagogue. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, so it's next Sabbath day, a week later, almost the whole city, the whole city of Antioch and Pisidia gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Word of the Lord is always shorthand for gospel. Paul's going to expound the Old Testament because that's all they had at the time, and he's going to show Jesus in the Old Testament. They gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They didn't like it. All these Gentiles. Remember the whole city shows up? It's a Gentile city. They're upset that all these Gentiles are here. And they began to contradict what Paul was saying or what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Now look what happened. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy. You see that? So when we thrust away the gospel, when we thrust away the word of God, you know what we also do? We judge ourselves unworthy. Friends, here's the application. Don't thrust aside the word of God. Don't push away the gospel. In so doing, you might think you're easing your conscience or you could keep your sin a little longer, but you know what you're doing? Look, judging yourself. Now again, I'm stretching the context a bit. I admit that, but I think what I'm saying is true. And if you would like to discuss my exegesis later, please come talk to me. All right, I really would love to do that. But here, it's they're rejecting him, and as they're rejecting Paul and his message, they're also rejecting God. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. You've judged yourselves worthy of living forever with God in peace and harmony in a new heavens and a new earth. One more place. Last chapter of the book of Acts, last paragraph of the book of Acts. When they had appointed a day for him, the hymn is Paul, and it was a day when he could have people in his house because he's on house arrest, waiting to go on trial before Nero. They came to him at his lodging in great numbers. These are Jewish people. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. Now, you think I preach long, and I admit, I do preach long. All right, I'll give you that. But listen to this. They came to him at his lodging in great numbers from morning till evening. You say, dang, that's a long sermon. Yeah. Don't hate on me. Don't hate on me. I don't go morning to evening. All right. So he's expounding to them and testifying to the kingdom of God, trying to convince them about Jesus. From where? From the law of Moses and the prophets. And by the way, uh, the Old Testament is divided up by Jews into three sections. You have the law, you have the prophets, and you have the writings, which are the Psalms. So basically from the Old Testament, he's trying to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. What happens? Some of them were convinced by what he said but others disbelieved, verse 25. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made this statement, this one statement, listen. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, again, Isaiah 6, 
Same thing Jesus quoted after the parable of the sower and the parable of the seeds there. Listen, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. Look at this. They will listen. They will listen. Isaiah was right in prophesying against you. You will not believe. You've closed your eyes. You've closed your ears. But you know what? We're going to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Gentiles, make sure you're listening. That's my encouragement. Make sure you're listening. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, here's the purpose. So as, here's why, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Where, what we'll get to later in, the, in chapter 11 is this. By means of Gentile inclusion in the promises of God, being in the covenant made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel becomes jealous. And Paul's intention is that through their jealousy, they will believe. And so in a very strange roundabout way, what he's doing is he's trying to Yes, preach the Jews first. He does that all through the book of Acts. He goes into the synagogues first. He finds where the Jewish people meet. It's an obvious mission strategy because he has the Old Testament in common with them. And he knows his Old Testament and he knows where Jesus is in the Old Testament. So that's simple. But then as they reject him and his message, he goes to the Gentiles. And what will happen is, as we saw in Acts 13, the Jewish people will get jealous and his aim is that in their jealousy... They will say, all these Gentiles getting in on our promises, they will also then turn. See with new eyes, hear with new ears, believe with alive hearts, and be saved. And this is where the rest of chapter 11 goes. Is that by jealousy, Paul is using the Gentile inclusion in the church uh, to see Jewish people saved. And it's actually God's intention, we'll find out later. And it's a very strange way of, of doing uh, mission work. But it's what God does. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Now, in, in um, oh, I was pushing buttons there, wasn't I? So in the last verse, let's, let's finish it with this. If their trespass, again, means rejection of Jesus, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, world and Gentiles, it's the same thing, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Here's what that means. There's coming a day, friends, when Jewish disbelief will end. 
I hope we see that day. But you know what happens if we see that day? We are at the end. We're in the last pages of the last chapter if that happens. But man, wouldn't that be great to see? A mass inclusion of Jewish people all over the world, all of a sudden seeing Jesus as the Messiah, as Paul did. And the idea here is, if their rejection of Jesus was a good thing, man, what will their inclusion be? An even better thing. You know what that better thing is? The return of Christ. The return of Jesus. Friends, do you realize when Jesus comes from heaven back to earth, righteousness and justice will finally be accomplished. Salvation will be ours. Cleansing of the earth. Friends, do you know that Jesus has promised to remake the earth itself? Do you know why? Do you know how much human blood has soaked into our soil and oceans for millennia? He's going to cleanse the whole earth. He's going to remake the whole universe. For who? For you. For me. Isn't that amazing? That God is going to do this whole new, remade, unbroken, unfrustrating world for us to live in. And there will be a lot of Jewish people there. Isn't that good news? You see, a lot of people think the New Testament is anti-Semitic. It's not. It just clearly lays out the facts of the Jewish rejection of Jesus. But the hope is it will only be for a short period of time. And when we see the embracing of Jesus as the true Messiah prophesied all throughout the Old Testament from, from Moses to Malachi, when that happens, it will mean the end is near, very near. And we who are Christians should rejoice. So, I want to offer a little bit of hope. Here's the hope. Friends, we've had a lot of brokenness over the last two years in particular. And maybe for some of you, you've experienced a lot of brokenness over the last two hours. Maybe the last two hours have been really rough for you. Maybe the last two days, maybe two weeks, maybe two months. Friends, we're all in this together. We are all, in a sense, slogging forward holding on to hope, trusting in Jesus. Now listen, I love that it's Mother's Day and that there is sunshine outside and it's not raining and it's not gray, finally. It's like we, we've got a taste of spring. And, and if this can make us, at least me, so happy just to see the sunshine and to have the clouds lift, friends, there's going to be an eternal lifting of the clouds. Do you realize that? Eternal sunshine. No more brokenness. No more wars. No more voting. <laughs> no more debating. I mean, what will, what will we do with our lives? You know, like, it's, no more fighting. No more arguing. No more hospital visits. What will we do? We will probably create. We'll probably enjoy. We'll probably explore. We'll probably build. 
will enjoy for sure. We're going to do all the things that are so frustrating right now and that we only get little tastes of. Friends, all this accomplished by Jesus. His perfect life, his leaving the realm of perfection, coming to this broken, death-filled, dying world. And listen, being born through a human mother, legitimately, with all the blood and all the fluids and all the pain and all the crying and having to nurse. Everything about that? God nursed. God fully dependent on another human being. Mary. It's amazing. And by doing so, God forever honored and in one sense glorified mothers. Isn't that cool? Motherhood is forever blessed by God himself who had a mother. <laughs> it's amazing. No, I don't think we should call Mary mother of God. We shouldn't pray to her. We shouldn't venerate her. You shouldn't have pictures of her in your house that you pray to. I'm not saying any of that, so don't go there. But the facts are, by Matthew chapter 1, God had a mother. Didn't have a father, an earthly one, but he did have a mother. And so because he had a mother, he was human. His humanness came from Mary. Fully God, fully man, and the fully man came through Mary. Isn't that awesome? And that fully manness, the hypostatic union, 100% God, 100% man, that manness, humanity, lived perfectly. Didn't fail one time. Friends, he never lusted once. Can you imagine that? He never even shaded the truth. He never had a hateful, sinful thought. He always loved all the time by the true definition of love, not what we think of as love. Because he was harsh with some people. But in his harshness, that was loving. It was the loving thing to do. He called some people some mean things. But you know what? That was the most loving and right thing to do. Because if the second greatest command is to love your neighbor as yourself, then Jesus fully kept that command for us. And we have salvation by the perfect life of Jesus and his substitutionary death on the cross. And so Jesus dies the death we should have died so that we can live the life that if not for Jesus, we could not live. In fact, John 10 calls it life to the full, life more abundantly. We have life that should be inspiring to others and hope-filled. Now, I know that's hard one. I'm there most days. But friends, hope is available if you will reach out and grab it. So I want to pray for us. I want to pray for the moms in the room. Uh, I know motherhood is hard. I know that if you want to have kids and you can't, that's hard too. I've been there experientially. We've lived that life. I know that if you don't have a mom and you wish you did, that's really hard. So it's a, it's a lovely day and it's a hard day for a lot of people. So I want to pray for you all. Uh, and I want to pray especially for the moms here that God would shed his grace on you and sustain you and help you to love your little ones. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for your great grace and mercy that has reached down into our darkness, into our mess. You've given us eyes to see. You've given us ears to hear. 
grace undeserved, unearned, demerited. Father, thank you that you have chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in your sight. Father, I lift up the moms to you in this room. God, I thank you for them. I thank you for their sacrifice. I thank you for the little ones they care for. God, give them strength. Fill them with your love for their little ones. God, I pray for each little one in this room and in the nursery and in the kids' ministry right now. God, would you please see save each child that is a part of this church. God, let none of them be lost. Father, I pray that the moms would be gospel women who would share the good news of Jesus with their kids, with words and with their life. Father, I do pray for, for those who wish they had a mom and don't. God, would you please bless them, comfort them, draw near to them during this season. God, I pray for those who wish they have kids but don't. I pray, God, draw near to them in this season. Give them grace. Give them a sustaining power. Draw near relationally and experientially to them. And I pray, God, that you would provide opportunities for spiritual mothering that would be fulfilling. God, I thank you that you chose that your son, your one and only son, would have a mother. And that by him being born, living perfectly, and dying a substitutionary death, we have life. God, we praise you. Pray that you would please make this come home to us. May we celebrate Jesus in our place. And would none of us be rejecting of him in this room. It's in Jesus' name. Everyone said... Amen. All right, so we're going to do something a little different tonight. Um, we're not going to do a live song, but we're going to do a meditation. And here's what's going to happen. Uh, you can stand up because you've been sitting for probably 45 minutes. So go ahead and stand up. The communion elements are going to come around like normal. And this is going to be a video with lyrics and a song. Some of you might know the song, so feel free to sing. There will be lyrics. But it's more of a meditation. I would rather you listen and read the lyrics and soak it in. But if you want to sing, please do. Okay, no one's forbidden uh, from singing here. Uh, we celebrate communion every week at Eternal City Church. And we do that because we believe that the cross of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection are the centerpiece of human history. And so we celebrate Jesus' body broken and bloodshed with these little elements. And so what'll happen is uh, I'm gonna jump off, the video's gonna play, and we're gonna watch, and after it's done, I'll come back out and I'll lead us all in taking communion. So please hold your elements until we're done, and then I'll come back out and we will uh, celebrate Jesus' body broken and bloodshed together. Mentioned there is meaning a meal, and this represents the meal that Jesus had with his disciples the night before he went to the cross. And it was a Passover meal, and he celebrated with his disciples, and he took the bread and he broke it and said, This is my body broken for you. And then after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Paul said to the Corinthians, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this is why we do this every single week, is we remember that by the body broken and bloodshed of Jesus, we are saved. We are in the new covenant of God's favor 
It's a grace covenant. And we proclaim his death until he comes again every time we do this. You proclaim, you say something about the Lord's death every time you eat this bread and drink this cup. So together, let's proclaim Jesus' body broken and bloodshed for us as a church and individuals. Father, we thank you so much for the body broken, the blood poured out of our Savior. By his wounds we are healed. God, we thank you that we are not left in our sin. You do not leave us to clean up our own mess. You do not make us get right first and then receive us, Father. Rather, you make us right with yourself. And then you clean us up. Father, we thank you. I pray for grace for every person in this room, God. Would they find you welcoming with open arms, with forgiveness in your eyes. And may they find you receiving of them. We thank you, Father, again, that you loved us so much that you sent your one and only Son, that whoever believes in Jesus, whoever entrusts themselves to him, will not perish, but have eternal life. God, we look forward to that day when life is everlasting. We thank you for Jesus in our place. It's in his name. Everyone said? Amen. Real quick, uh, two things. Ladies, I know some of you came in late. Every lady who can read gets one of these books. So they're on the, in the back there. Got to make sure you get one. Um, this is Jackie Hill Perry's Holier Than Thou, and it's a book about God's holiness and how it's good for us because holy means without sin. And so if God is without sin, that means he can't sin against you. And if he can't sin against you, then he's the most trust, trustworthy person there is. So make sure, ladies, you get one of these books. Um, and lastly, we do need those emails so we can get you the, the monthly newsletter. Um, so make sure that the clipboard will be floating around, especially if we have one of your old emails. Uh, make sure we get your email so you can get the monthly newsletter so you know what's going on. Love you guys. Happy Mother's Day. We'll see you next week.